Chapter 5. A Full Jesus in an Empty World Stop Living Like They Were Right About You Too many sermons assume that significant spiritual transformation can happen by acknowledging cognitive truths alone. Look back at all of the sermons you've ever heard where you nodded your head thinking, quote, I agree. Then you put those truths on the cognitive shelf to collect dust for the rest of your life. The same is true for how we apply biblical truths to our marriages and singleness. It's one thing to be able to identify and even confess how we've turned women into gods and sought from them what only God can give us. It's another thing entirely to know how to actually stop the urges we feel to gain approval and adoration from women. When I first read Wild at Heart, I thought I was cured. I figured, quote, how could I possibly continue these fantasies about the golden-haired woman when I know it's synonymous with worshiping an idol? How could I do that to my God, who I revere and love? Yet it continued. The answer to why it could continue lies in how we are conditioned to be approval and acceptance addicts. For most of us, this conditioning began at a very young age. In fact, most of our modern social constructs revolve around it. If we perform well, we are given approval and acceptance. We are told we are valuable. If we don't perform well, we receive dishonor and punishment. We are told we aren't valuable. This idea of, quote, perform or you are nothing, unquote, is as foundational to American culture as apple pie. It has formed each of us from infancy. If you can hit a curveball, you're praised as valuable and you make the Little League All-Star team. If you can't chew gum and walk at the same time, you're picked last in gym class and no one likes you. If you perform well on a test, you get a good grade and are given praise from teachers and parents. If you don't perform well, you fail and no one praises you. If you accomplish something positive as a child, your parents give you approval and acceptance. If you do something wrong, you are punished and sometimes treated as if you aren't valuable. If you dress, look, and act a certain way, the popular crowd will accept you. If you don't, they reject you. Performance-based conditioning comes in all shapes and sizes, most of them unhealthy. At the end of the day, they communicate a subtle but potent message to us. There is something severely inadequate about you. Do fill in the blank, and you will prove you have value. This message is identical to what Satan told Jesus in the wilderness of Matthew 4, 1-11. And how did Jesus respond? He knew there was nothing inadequate about him because he had embraced his identity as the Father's beloved Son. Therefore, he knew he had nothing to prove. He knew Satan was wrong, and Satan's judgment on him had no authority. Most of us can identify key people in our past who have branded us with the message that we are worthless. This could have been a harsh, abusive, or neglectful parent, a reckless coach or teacher, the popular guy or girl who shunned us, a bully, or any number of people who crossed our paths. These messages create an incredible void inside of us that cries out, quote, Am I lovable? Am I important? Am I acceptable? 
am I valuable? Unquote. Fast forward to adult life, and if you've been rejected by women, including your wife, it only compounds the voices and doubts from childhood. So we seek things out that will answer our questions in the affirmative. The classic case is the teenage girl who doesn't have a loving father in her life. She seeks the love she should have received from her dad from young men who don't really care about her. They make her feel beautiful, important, and powerful during the sexual encounters she has with them. Then ditch her once they're done with her, or she ditches them after getting her fix. Why does she continue to do this? Because her dad told her she was worthless, she seeks acceptance and approval wherever she can find it. But here is the key question. Is her dad correct? No. We'd all answer an obvious no to this. Of course she isn't worthless. Her dad is a jerk, and he is wrong. All this needs to be a key turning point for you. The people in your past who have branded you with the message that you are worthless and need to prove your value are wrong. You need to name these people. Acknowledge their judgment of you has no authority to dictate your value. And then stop living as if they are right. Colossians 1.22 and many other passages of Scripture make it explicitly clear we are loved unconditionally by God when we put our faith in Jesus. The problem is we have built a false self to protect ourselves. Footnote. To read more about your false self and true self, read Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership by Ruth Haley Barton, a book that God used to transform my life as I entered the freedom of his love and grace. End of footnote. A false self that doesn't allow us to receive this unconditional love. The false self is our performance self, our image self, and the self we portray to everyone so they think we are okay. We strive for goals and achievements, many times in the name of God, to show the world and those who most harmed us in our past that we are valuable. Put another way, we are trying to show God and everyone else that we can earn our relationship with him. We feel too unworthy to just receive it from him. So we try jumping through a few hoops first to feel like we can really claim it as ours. The truth is, we are too ashamed of our true self to receive God's unconditional love on his terms. That we receive it in spite of our limitations, shortcomings, and sinfulness. We know it's not fair, not just, to be loved unconditionally like this. And we've always been told we don't deserve to be loved like this, aren't worthy of love like this, and need to prove ourselves as lovable. So we continue to live out those messages, missing the freeing and transforming truth that God does indeed unconditionally love us as we are that he's already done all the, quote, proving needed for this love to be ours. What we don't realize is that when we strive to earn this love, we automatically cancel out our ability to receive it. How can someone receive a love they can't earn? How can a person who has a definition of love that is based completely on conditions receive unconditional love? They can't. Footnote, 
They are certainly still unconditionally loved by God. That's the beauty of unconditional love. They just can't embrace it and enjoy it like God intends. End of footnote. To receive this kind of love, we have to put our guard down, a guard made of the lies we've been coerced into believing about what we must do to be loved. We have to stop protecting ourselves and lean into Jesus to protect us. You can't do anything to achieve being lovable, so stop trying. But Jesus did do something for you because he loved you and found you lovable, which means you are lovable. This love didn't grow from your effort. It was proven from his. Understand that this doesn't make this unconditional love any less true. In fact, it makes it more true. Because if we could gain this love on our own merit, we certainly would be able to lose it on our own lack of merit. But since Jesus gained it for us on his merit, the merit and righteous standing he gave us aren't going anywhere, ever. We will always be loved by God, and we will always be found righteous in Christ. So now you need to connect the dots. What were the wrong messages people gave you about your worth? In what ways have you attempted to live out these messages, especially in the area of sexual sin? How are your urges for sexual sin fueled by your desire to feel valuable? Take extended time in solitude with God to allow his unconditional love to melt away the false self that has served you for so many years. Stop living as though hitting a curveball will make you valuable as a person. Stop living as though attaining the perfect woman will make you more valuable as a person. Know at your core that God didn't make you worthless and that in Jesus' redemption, you are a holy and righteous, fully approved, fully accepted new creation. Society says you are what you produce. The gospel says you are what Jesus produced. Your little league baseball coach was wrong. God is right. It's time to start living that way. Adopted. Do you believe you are God's son whom he loves and in whom he is well pleased? These are the words he spoke directly to Jesus, so you might feel like they don't apply to you in the same way. But consider Romans 8, 14-17, emphasis added, quote, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. Romans 8, 1-4, emphasis added. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Colossians 1, 22, parentheses and emphasis added. But now he, God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Hebrews 2.11, parentheses and emphasis added. But the one who makes people holy, Jesus, and those who are made holy, us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Unquote. What is a co-heir? A co-heir is someone who receives the same inheritance from the king as someone else. So a co-heir with Christ receives what Christ receives. If you are a co-heir with Christ, adopted as God's son, you receive the word, quote, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Unquote. But how can God be well pleased with a sinner like me? It's all laid out in God's word. The, quote, righteous requirement of the law is, quote, fully met in us. This means when Jesus' blood covers us, his perfection is bestowed on us. Like a big blanket placed over us, his perfect blood covers us so that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' righteousness becomes our righteousness. Jesus has made us holy. We are without blemish and free from accusation, just as Jesus is. This is unconditional love from God. This is salvation. We get 100% on the final exam, compliments of Jesus. God is well pleased with you and approves of you. So who does God say you are? He says you are his son. He has adopted you. What happens to someone's last name when they're adopted? It changes. Their identity changes. Their identity is secured. They now have the full rights to their new father's inheritance, just like the other children in the family. You are not an orphan, so don't live as one. God paid way too much for you. Not only are you an adopted son of God's, the Bible says you also are Jesus' bride, whom he is madly in love with. It's essential we comprehend this because if we don't, it can feel like God's mercy towards us is only a begrudging acceptance of us, rather than the passionate love and desire our hearts thirst for. We can view our atonement as if it were a transaction God did for us just because he's God. We know we'll be in heaven, but we miss out on the romantic love and passion Jesus feels toward us. Ephesians 5, 31-32 makes sure we don't miss this. Quote, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Unquote. We'll thoroughly unpack the one flesh concept in chapter 9, but in a nutshell, it's referring to sex within marriage. What scripture is telling us here is that Jesus' relationship to us, the church, is that of a husband's desire for his wife, which is best demonstrated through the act of sex. If you've ever wanted someone to desire you, you have it here with Jesus. God uses the most vivid metaphor in human experience to communicate his love, goodness, approval, desire, attraction, validation, and acceptance of you. This goes well past a simple cognitive acknowledgement that your sins are forgiven. It's a living, breathing longing from God. This is not faux intimacy. This is intimacy in its purest form. Many of us have been burned by intimacy. We were either rejected by a woman or by our own parents when we were children. These traumatic and formative experiences have messed with the wirings of our brains in such a way that the idea of intimacy with God is something not desirable to us. Meanwhile, Jesus says he is our husband and we are his wife. Like a battered woman who refuses to trust a man again, or an abused foster child who won't receive his adoptive parents' love, we protect ourselves rather than letting our husband Jesus protect us. Are these deep waters? Sure. But you wouldn't be reading this book if you hadn't already tried all the surface-level stuff that doesn't work. In the first century, a woman was very vulnerable in society if she didn't have a husband. Only men were educated and only men learned trades, so they were the sole source of economic provision. It was up to fathers to protect and provide for their daughters up until the time of each daughter's marriage. At this point, the daughter's husband formally took the responsibility of providing for and protecting her. For women in the first century, marriage wasn't a matter of convenience or even romance. It was a matter of survival. There were even laws that dictated that if a woman's husband died, her dead husband's brother would have to marry her to ensure her provision and protection. If a woman had no husband or father, she might be sadly forced to turn to prostitution to provide for herself. So when you hear Jesus is the groom and you are the bride, you need to think about the relationship in that context. Can you imagine being a woman all alone in the dark, barbaric first century world? Can you imagine the fear, the pain, and the longing? Can you imagine how many men you'd chase after, just like the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, 1 through 42, to attempt to protect yourself and fill your insecurities? This is the state we find ourselves in today when we don't find our primary intimacy, affection, validation, and approval in Jesus, our groom. Ask Jesus if he'll protect you and see what he says. Ask Jesus if he's like those other voices from your past or present and see what he says. The voices from earlier in this chapter who told you you're not valuable and need to earn approval. In your daily quiet time with the Lord, these are the things to soak in. Throughout your day, these are the things you are to pray without ceasing. This sort of transformation doesn't come through cognitive recognition or through listening to this audiobook. 
It comes through repeated, rhythmic, relational times of prayer with Jesus. If you don't know where to start, just remind yourself over and over again, quote, You are my son, whom I love, and in whom I am well pleased, unquote. Transformation lies in creating new rhythms that allow you to spend daily and weekly times alone with Jesus so he can embed these truths deep into your soul. In an earthly marriage, knowing about your spouse is not intimacy. Being intimate with her is. The same goes for the spiritual marriage of Christ and his church. If you know this truth in your head, but it still feels like you're, quote, white-knuckling it in your fight against temptation, chances are you need to spend more of this intimate, relational time with Jesus, your groom. You need to listen more intently to his voice. This goes beyond Bible reading. It is setting the Bible before Jesus and asking him to fill you with its truths, to fill you with the sobering knowledge of the mercy you don't deserve. It's asking him to help you believe the Bible's truths at the core of your being. Believe to the point where you're not afraid anymore. It's asking him if he's trustworthy and listening to his response. Every step you take in trusting Jesus more securely is one step further away from the magnetic pull of thinking women will fulfill you. What separates Jesus and his word from all other suitors is his authority. Jesus isn't some namby-pamby husband hoping he can protect his bride when the bad guys come knocking. He is a fierce warrior with full ability and authority to protect his wife from anything this dark and barbaric world throws at her. Jesus rested in this authority when Satan was tempting him to seek fulfillment elsewhere, and it's the same authority available for you to rely on. In Matthew 4, 1-11, Satan essentially tells Jesus over and over, quote, You ain't much. Nobody's going to believe you're the Messiah. No one will accept you. Do something impressive. Protect your image. Prove yourself. Unquote. Meanwhile, Jesus replies with truths from his Father. Knowing what Satan claims as truth is irrelevant, but what God says stands. Satan has no authority as a judge. Only God does. So if God, the judge, says you have incredible value as his son, you do. It doesn't matter what Satan says or what your co-workers say or what Hollywood says or what women say about you. And this includes your wife. If you already know who you are, you don't have to go looking for it elsewhere. Jesus knew who he was. So whether he was starving in the desert or being abandoned by throngs of followers, or hanging from the cross, he didn't need to seek something out to make himself feel whole. And neither do you. My wife is not God, either. My wife is not God, and neither is yours. Quite a revelation, I know. But you'd be amazed at the change believing this will make in a marriage. While we definitely view the women we lust over as gods, looking for the things only God can truly provide us with, we do the same thing with our wives in subtler ways. In fact, 
the marriage school of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours teaches this very directly. When I'm looking to my wife to fill up my quote love bank and live as if I'm unable to show her love unless she does so, I'm putting expectations on her that should only be placed on God. She becomes my fuel source rather than God providing my fuel. If we ever look to any human, our wives included, to be the source of our acceptance and fulfillment, we will be sorely disappointed, as well as guilty of idolatry. When we realize we've made women into false gods, we are freed from looking to our wives to be gods in our lives. Many of us look to our wives to be perfect and to satisfy our every desire. When she's not able to live up to these expectations, our hearts long for these things elsewhere. Enter other women. Wives are great helpers God has given us, but they are not God himself. They cannot fulfill our every need and deepest longing or satisfy our needs for acceptance and validation. Only God can do that. When we realize this, it brings incredible freedom to our marriages. This freedom allows us to accept our wives' imperfections because we no longer have the irrational expectation that they will be able to give us what only God can. We can simply love them as the broken and imperfect humans they are who are still very much gifts of mercy from God. It should not be breaking news that our wives are sinners. If it is, we need to take a long look at the sinner in the mirror and realize how far from being perfect or, quote, godlike we are. Many times, our condemnation of our wives' inadequacies is simply a reflection of our own self-righteousness. We are the, quote, good spouse doing what the marriage books tell us to do, and she is the negligent spouse, not holding up to her end of the deal. She's not being God for us, and we are not happy about it. Women are not God, period. If your wife has let you down, and you think finding another woman will solve your dilemma, you're simply trading one idol for another, moving from one golden-haired woman to the next. Men will trade in everything for a divorce or an affair. Their relationship with their children, the stability of a two-parent home for their children, their testimony, their reputation, their ministry, their right standing with God, sometimes even their profession, all in the name of plucking out the thorn of their marriage and exchanging it for perceived relief. As if their only meaning in life was found in who they are sleeping with. The irony is, if you ask this same man to trade in his divorce or affair for God's will, he won't. One trade-in is worth it to him, but the other somehow isn't. For Christian men, the Bible is incredibly clear about what we undertake when we follow Jesus. We agree to a trade-in, our will for his. Contrary to the instruction of Hollywood's romantic comedies, we are to find our purpose in something much greater than who we go to bed with, something the man living in a constant fantasy land fails to grasp. In Luke 9.23, Jesus tells us, quote, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me, unquote. Taking up our cross, like Jesus took up for us, is the definition of what love is. We are to love our wives this way, 
but this is also how we directly show love to God himself. There are plenty of days when we won't feel like loving our wives. On these days especially, we need to reorient ourselves to what scripture tells us worship is, and thus what our life and purpose are. Our purpose is not to be loved. It is to love. Footnote, Matthew 22, 36-40. End of footnote. Our purpose is not to be worshipped. It is to worship God. Footnote, Romans 12, 1. End of footnote. Some husbands endure trials when it comes to sex. Perhaps a wife is going through an illness where she's unable to have sex or no longer desires it. Or a wife may no longer desire sex after having a child. Oftentimes, these seasons can go on for a very long time, sometimes even indefinitely. As difficult as these types of trials are, what if you embrace them as opportunities to pick up your cross, worshiping God in the way you show love to your wife, rather than caving to the flesh and its selfish desires? Desires such as getting angry toward God and your wife, and then in your entitlement going off to get your needs met elsewhere. Rather than worry about your own, quote, needs, what better time to entrench your source of fulfillment in the Father's love for you? Filling up so you can overflow with love into your wife. We don't love our wives for what they can give us. We love our wives because it glorifies God. We love our wives as an act of worship to God. Romans 12.1 tells us true and proper worship is to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Worship is way more than singing songs at church. It is doing God's will daily. The best way we can worship God is to sacrifice ourselves for our wives, to show our wives the love of God. Colossians 3.23-24 continues to pile on this truth as it tells us that whatever we do, we should do it with all our heart, not as if we are doing it for the human in front of us, our wife, but as if we were doing it for God himself. There will be days, sometimes many, when your love bank from your wife is bone dry, and there is no kickback from her in sight. If you can't muster the desire to show her love for her sake, do it for God's. Rather than love your wife in order to be loved in return, love your wife as an act of worship to our merciful God. Doing anything else is worshiping an idol, idols who will never satisfy. Your wife is not God, and she will only let you down if you hold her to this standard. Release yourself from the slavery of longing for God in a woman. Run to Jesus, the only one who can be God for you, and worship him in all you do, especially in how you treat the wife he has entrusted you with. Water Boys for Jesus You may have heard the chair metaphor regarding what it means to really believe or trust in God. It's one thing to look at a chair and believe it will hold you up if you sit on it. It's an entirely different thing to actually sit in the chair. Learning to really trust God and live sitting in the chair is one of the hardest things there is. And Bible verses don't always help. 
Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? James 4, 2b You do not have because you do not ask God. John 14, 14 You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Romans 8, 28 And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. It's easy to read verses like these and wonder why God is holding out on us when we ask him to help in our marriages or dating lives. Why wouldn't God want us to be happy? Why would God want us to suffer? The reason we get confused is because God answers prayer in accordance with his will, his name, his plan, and his glory, not ours. Or even more specifically, for the glory and goodness of his kingdom, not our kingdom. You know, that little plot of land you have in your head where you sit on a tiny throne with a tiny crown on your head. Which is the greater good, God's good or your good? The answer is obvious. So the next question must be, what is God's good? And to be honest, we aren't always going to like the answer. You often hear sermons about the powerful metaphors Scripture uses to describe our relationship to God, several of which we've already gone over in this chapter. We are his sons, his friends, his co-heirs, his bride, and his image bearers. But how many sermons do you hear about how we are God's slaves? Romans 6, 16-22 clearly calls us slaves to God and slaves to righteousness. Thankfully, we don't live in a country where slavery is legal anymore. The very existence of slavery in today's world ought to make us bristle. But ultimately, what is slavery? It is one human owning another. The slave who is owned has no rights, no entitlements. The slave is controlled by the master. Being God's slave is not the only identifier we carry in Scripture, but it is a very important identifier we can't overlook or ignore. It is an identifier that puts us in our place before a holy God, the King of Kings. Our slavery to God is also unique in that it's a relationship we chose to enter when we received Christ's forgiveness, as opposed to being a slave to sin, which we did not choose and which is our only other option. Jesus literally bought us from the captivity of our sins, making the payment through his perfect sacrifice on the cross. So how does being a slave tie into trusting God? Using the same Greek word for slave, Jesus gives a helpful teaching about this in Luke 17, 7 through 10. It's likely not an overly familiar passage to you, as I doubt it's on many preachers' lists of top 10 texts they love to preach. Quote, Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, 
Come along now and sit down and eat. Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant, because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. While these verses are unlikely to appear in a framed, cross-stitched plaque hanging in your living room, they are incredibly helpful when it comes to trusting God in our marriages and dating lives. They are helpful because they put us in our proper place before our master with utmost clarity. If I'm the water boy on the baseball team, which I was in ninth grade, footnote, because I didn't make the squad as a player, they called it equipment manager, but we all know a water boy when we see one. I was good at it too. End of footnote. I'm going to have a very frustrating season if I keep wondering why the coach doesn't put me in the game. In fact, if I eagerly expect to play third base or to go in and pinch hit, it's only a matter of time before I grow bitter and resentful toward the coach and start attacking his character. Have you ever been here with God? This is why Luke 17, 7-10 is so helpful. We are the water boys in the kingdom of God. We are the servants. In fact, we are unworthy servants. We shouldn't even get to be in the dugout or wear the team hat. Our role is not to play third base. It is to serve the coach and do whatever he tells us. When we know this, we can thoroughly enjoy the growing relationship we have with our coach and be grateful he lets us to be associated with his team at all. So, what has God, our master, told us to do? What does it look like to serve him and his kingdom? And going into this role, do we fully understand our service is for his glory and his kingdom, not our glory and our kingdom? Do we understand the, quote, good we pray for is his kingdom's good, not our personal good? And he and only he knows what this needs to look like, how to get there, and how to use us as a part of that process. A process spread out over multiple millenniums within a fallen world, not our singular lifetime. Do you realize the suffering you experience is maturing you into the man God wants you to be? In fact, the overarching good of this maturation is enough that we are to rejoice in the midst of our suffering. I'm reminded of fasting. I hate fasting. I hate fasting because I love to eat. But whenever I fast, I always look back and see how great an experience it was spiritually, how it kept Jesus on my mind and forced me to draw closer to him to sustain and stretch me. The dry seasons in our marriages function the same way. When we hunger for affection in our marriages that is not there, we are forced to press into Jesus' affection, just as when we are hungry for food during a fast. We would have never had this experience of being stretched and strengthened if it weren't for the struggle and season of scarcity we were going through. And yes, sometimes this is for a very long season, 
possibly even an unending one. But if the answer to our prayers is that we become more intimately connected with Jesus and thus become more like Jesus, learning how to love like Jesus, there is truly no better answer in the world. The truth of the gospel is that we need nothing in addition to what Jesus provides us. He is all sufficient. Do you realize God sovereignly and specifically chose you to show his unchanging, unconditional love to your specific wife? That you are the agent and witness of this love to her. In fact, Ephesians 5, 29-33 describes a husband being crucified the way Jesus was crucified for the church. There you go. Marriage is a 60-year crucifixion. It's right there in the text. Footnote. This slightly tongue-in-cheek remark first appeared in chapter 1 for single guys, warning them what the Bible says about marriage. End of footnote. The point is that marriage is not for your comfort. So why should we be surprised when God doesn't answer our prayers for marital or relational comfort in the way we expect? Marriage isn't designed to fulfill our selfish desires or to make us happy. Footnote. It's not a sin to be happy or to want to be happy, but we need to find our happiness in Christ and not approach marriage as if that were its purpose. End of footnote. It's designed to make us holy. In the long run, holiness produces a lasting happiness as God uses it to craft us into the person we were always meant to be. 1 Peter 2, 18-25 goes as far as to say suffering is a way of following in Jesus' footsteps. We are to respond to it the way Jesus did. Jesus chose to trust the Father to take care of his needs rather than to take things into his own hands. This setup isn't unique to you. The Bible is full of stories describing times when God's servants suffered greatly for the overarching good of God's glory and kingdom. In fact, it's pretty hard to find people in the Bible who didn't suffer for the good of God's kingdom. Look at Jesus himself, praying in great anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. Quote, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Unquote. Luke 22, 42. Of course, quote, the cup is referring to the death he was about to endure on the cross. Jesus asked the Father to spare him of this, a prayer we know wasn't answered the way Jesus wanted. Not only did the Father not spare him, physical torture soon accompanied the emotional anguish Jesus was praying through. And we can't forget our buddy Hosea. I say our buddy because if there's anyone who can teach us about serving God through our marriages, it's Hosea. God told Hosea to love and marry the active prostitute, Gomer, as an example to the Israelites of their unfaithfulness to God. Talk about suffering as a husband. Yet Hosea trusted God and remained faithful to Gomer and to God. 
which were synonymous and simultaneous acts, because he was a servant of God, just as you and I are. We don't always see the big picture, but we know God, and we know God is faithful, good, sovereign, and trustworthy. We also know Jesus has already won the victory, and there will be a day when we are with him when suffering is no more. Finally, we know God has given us a job to do today, to love our wives the way Jesus loves us. The Replacement Program Like chapter 3, this chapter ends with a disclaimer. I'm not advocating you need to turn a blind eye to the problems in your marriage and or to your wife's specific areas of needed growth. What I'm saying is there are two ways to approach these issues. One is with God calling the shots, and the other is with you calling the shots. The focus of this chapter is to put God and no one else on the throne. Not supermodels, not your wife and not you. It's to make God your power source, the engine that propels your fulfillment, the food that fills your stomach, and the groom who will protect and provide for you. Let God quench your thirst for validation, which he promises to do, so you don't have to go looking for it elsewhere. This chapter emphasized developing an appetite for God's truth that replaces our unhealthy, overly developed appetite for sex and for being worshipped via sex. A biological drive for sex is, of course, necessary, natural, and created by God. But our contemporary appetites for it are off the charts and out of control. Coffee, sushi, and beer are all considered acquired tastes. Many people don't like them at first, but by incremental exposure, they end up developing a craving, an appetite for them. Something similar happens with sex. At no time in history has there ever been as much exposure to sex as in our culture today. Whether it's a third grader walking through the house while a porno is on, footnote, I witnessed this when trying to help a family in my neighborhood with some furniture, end of footnote. The regular innuendo and lingerie bedroom scenes in popular sitcoms, the barely-dressed NFL cheerleaders television networks love to zoom in on, or the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, which annually takes over every grocery store checkout lane. These levels of non-discriminatory exposure are something history and children have never seen in previous eras. Yet, Any man born after 1980 has been raised on them. Footnote, estimating roughly when the internet became commonplace during a boy's adolescent years. End of footnote. To curb this insatiable appetite for sex, we have to do more than shut it off. We also must replace it with something that is even better in the long run. In the same way our voracious appetite for sex was acquired by elevated exposure, we must raise our appetite for God's truths. At first taste, sitting down to open the Bible as a daily practice or 
taking an extended time in solitude with the Lord might feel mundane and difficult, like trying to stomach your first ever cup of black coffee. But when the ultimate solution for our sexual immorality is to realize we are approved and whole in Christ, and we don't need to look for this in lust or in our marriages, we are compelled to sit in the stream of God's healing presence, to soak in it daily, just as Jesus did in his 40 days in the wilderness. I encourage you to set up a covenant with some other men to commit to 30 minutes a day with the Lord for the next 30 days. What I love is when we commit to this, eventually what once felt like an obligation becomes our life-giving fuel station for the rest of our day. When we start to experience the change in perspective we get from this relational time with the Lord and the feeling of freedom it brings, obligation soon turns into desperation and anticipation. What's exciting about all of this is it is possible. Don't read your Bible and pray out of discipline. Do so out of desperation. Write down the truths of who you are in Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to remind you of them day after day after day.